Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of One Vision. Today is going to be Brad and myself talking about our work and one of our latest project, Beyond Good. So, Brad, why don't you get us started? Yeah, well, I just, um, I'm excited to talk about the book. I always am, but uh, this is—it's more than a project. I think it's sort of a lifelong learning experience, and this is just uh, the way that we have sort of encapsulated so much of that experience uh, into these pages. So for those of you who have not picked up the book because you're in the United States, it is now available and it is shipping. And you could go to Amazon and pick it up. You could go to Coke and Page. You could go to Barnes & Noble. You could go to anywhere fine books are sold. Um, so beyond good, the one thing I wanted to kind of start with today was sort of a reintroduction as to why. And I want to talk today a little bit about sort of, you know, where we came from with this book, who we talked to, and why we talked to them. But one of the things that I wanted to start with was the first couple things that we were both writing in the beginning of the book. And it was very linear, I think, the way that we took this process. And the very first words that I put onto a page was a poem. And it was a poem that meant a lot to me. And I just wanted to read it really quick because we couldn't include it in the book in the end. Um, and it was called The Invitation. If you are a dreamer, come in. If you are a dreamer, a wisher, a liar, a hoper, a prayer, a magic bean buyer, if you're a pretender, come sit by my fire. For we have some flax golden tails to spin. Come in, come in. This poem was put out by Shel Silverstein. And it was from the book Where the Sidewalk Ends, which was the first book of poems that I ever had in my life. It was given to me by my mother. And the reason why I wanted to include that is because it's the very first poem in that book. And it's an entry point for so many like tales. And I actually think that this book is kind of like that. And I think it's an entry point into the stories of people and companies that are doing more. And so given that, I wanted to talk about sort of the why we wrote the book and where we came from and invite the readers into our thought process. So I wanna start there since uh, we're doing this. And I wanna ask you a little bit about the why you wrote the book and talk a little bit about kind of where you came from because there was a section in the book that also wasn't there um, that was about us and about the authors and kind of why we wrote the book. So why don't you start with that? Yeah, I think I shared it on um, on social last year when we were writing the book and it was it was a personal story, right? It, it wasn't part, it wasn't the reason why we started writing the book, but it was absolutely and is absolutely still the reason why um, I gravitate towards the type of work that we do. Um, that's also why I beat the drum so loudly about issues that are around equality, around food insecurity, around just, you know, meeting the basic needs of, of humans. Because it, I, I was born in, I was born and raised in Hong Kong, for those of you who didn't know. Um, and I didn't move to the States until I was 18. But before that, when I was in Hong Kong, my parents raised me up in a way that 
which keep me very in tune of what's going on in, in the real world, right? My school is, is a Catholic school. And so we did a lot of activities um, around how do we look at the needs of the poor, the, the elderly, and what is our role to serve them? And it was very much serving that community. We did that for the entire 12 years of, of my schooling. And that meant something to me because, you know, um, my parents, they were raised in Hong Kong, but we were not a wealthy family, right? We had enough to get by and that was pretty much it. But my mother, she came from a different background. Um, she was born around um, the end of the, of the world where um, Hong Kong was invaded by Japan. It was a very tough time for a lot of people. And it was a tough time for my grandparents. It was a tough time for my mother. She grew up with not much of anything. But it was because of how people in the society have reached out and helped and lifted up those that were in poverty. It was because my mother's school, how they played a huge role in enabling her to have the basic needs met, that the church meant a lot to her, the school meant a lot to her, and how it cemented my upbringing on why it is important to help those that have less than us. But at the same time, it was also my, my mom was born in a big family that she didn't have a chance to pursue what she wanted after school because she had to come out and work. She had to make money to support the rest of my aunts and uncles. Yes, that's how it is. You have a big family and you're an older sibling and you do what you do to support the rest of your siblings. And so she couldn't get to university even though it could have been paid. Um, she got a scholarship. She couldn't pursue higher education as some of her friends did. And we all know how the story goes, right? Then the rest of your opportunities get that much limited. And so I was also very acutely aware of how one's circumstance not one's lack of ambition, not one's lack of ability, as often would have been portrayed in here, but one's circumstance would limit what you can and cannot do, and that limits the rest of the story of your life. And, and I think that part played a huge role in how I think about inequality, especially the last few years, when we see so many people that got impacted. And we talk about that very often, right? 50 million Americans are facing food insecurity because of wealth inequality, because of opportunities gap, because of gender gap, all kinds of things that piled up against them. Also because of where the zip codes are, right? The United States have the lowest mobility, economic mobility amongst all of the developed nations. And it's a man-made problem. It's a man-made problem because we don't pay enough attention to those that aren't born in the quote-unquote right zip code. We don't pay enough attention to those that are not white. We don't pay enough attention to those who are not men. We don't pay enough attention to those who are not in power, who don't have money. When you are in a position of power, Oftentimes, unfortunately, you tend to look after the well-being of those that you identify with. 
and it just creates this cycle that gets us to where we are right now. So when I look at financial services, when I look at the work that we do, when I look at the writings that we do, it seems like we're turning out pieces after pieces. That's very much part of that theme is how do we rethink what we do? What is our role in all of this? Because we all have a role to play, right? Doesn't matter what position, what role you work in, what industry you're in, you and I, we all have a role to play. I think, you know, bringing your whole self to your work um, is a piece of that. And I think, you know, for society to, to almost, you know, push down people's backgrounds and sort of where they came from and all of the things that they've collected in their life that's inside their head and inside their heart. It's like, you know, why don't we encourage people to bring all of that, you know, to, to bear in terms of their efforts at work? Because I think, you know, your work needs to mean something. And so the way that we structured the book was sort of along those lines. And it was interesting, you know, to think about your background and to think about mine, very different, opposite sides of the world, and not all that different in terms of, you know, some of the experiences. Both my um, mom and dad were born in Nebraska, and they were born into big families, you know, as was the time. And they were, you know, my, my, my dad literally like worked on a farm and lived on a farm for most of his, you know, earlier years. And then after he had met my mom, you know, they didn't date right away and all the rest. Um, they kind of magically came together and they moved to California and that's where I was born. So every single time anybody flies into San Francisco, that's the city that I was born in was Burlingame. That's, that's where the actual airport is. And so. You know, I grew up in Silicon Valley, which was very, very different than the world that I would have lived in had I been in Nebraska. I mean, I have no idea where I would be living now if I was born in Nebraska, who knows? And we almost moved to Alaska, so Lord knows who knows, you know, what I would have been and what kind of books I would have. I would have been writing books about caribou or something. Um, sorry, that's, that's probably not fair to people in Alaska. Um, but when you think about the book, you know, I, I, I took the the early parts of the book to really introduce this idea of challenging us to write about, you know, the, the prevailing model within financial services. And you brought this great context into food, water, and shelter. And I was like, why are we talking about, you know, water shortages? And why are we talking about food and these things at first? And then I'm like, oh, it kind of really clicks together. And so, you know, this is what I want our readers to really take apart was, you know, why we talked about scarcity why we talked about privilege, why we talked about profitability. Because, you know, the, the world that many of us, especially people that work within banking, experience isn't bringing their full self. I think the more people acknowledge where they came from and the conditions to which they were growing up and what they experienced allows us, you know, to, to dismiss, you know, so much of the, the, the way that most people live. You know, once once there's a certain level of achievement, you know, you, you you almost forget kind of where you came from, and that's not what we should be doing because there's so many people that don't have, you know, the 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 life that that so few of us honestly experience. There's so many people struggling, and and this is why the industry is important. This is why this book is important to get people to think more about who they serve and who they have the privilege to serve. So going back from food, water, and shelter. 
you know, I still remember that water. I, I still remember the expression on your face when I started digging into water, when well, I started yeah. looking into what's going on in India, for example, you were like, what are you doing? We, we, we had chapter <laughs> deadlines and, and I was like, why, why are we, why, we're spending an awful lot of time on water here. Tell me more about that. But it's fascinating, right? I mean, so I learned so many things about, you know, food, water, shelter. And it was like, we know some of these things based on the U.S., but you brought in so many sort of different perspectives. Um, Actually, before we forget, though, I think we need to thank Arun. Um, he was the one who first talked about water. Um, I remember two years ago when he went back to India for, for holiday and he came back, he was so excited. He said, oh, my God, I am working on this new project with my college mates about water. And, and I remember <laughs> we were like, what, what are you doing exactly? And then he started explaining how water scarcity and, and just access, lack of access to clean water will so severely impact the Indian economy. And mm -hmm. so that was, that was literally the first time I ever heard about that. So kudos, Erin. Well, and, and, you know, just access to food and access to water and access to proper shelter and what it means for someone's ability to have, you know, a certain level of success and how that generationally impacts um, people. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's important to sort of reset. It's important to think about the privileges that we have uh, in a lot of the Western world. And, you know, it, going, going into that, then we started sort of breaking down business models and we started to talk to more people. You know, it's because we set up the thesis in the first three or four chapters about not just, you know, sort of basic um, needs, but then we started talking about different groups that are often sort of um, missed by financial services. And so we talk about gig workers, we talk about women, we talk about um, small businesses, and we talk about older adults, and we talk about sort of these missed opportunities to really meet financial needs. And you know, talk a little bit about how we thought about pulling other voices in and, and sort of the way that that started, because that was, again, something that uh, you initiated. And I wasn't sure where we would end up, but we ended up having 50 some odd voices. We ended up, you know, sort of featuring um, more than 100 companies in terms of their business models and what they do and the great stuff that happens in this ecosystem. So let's talk about that a little bit. Oh, I remember the the fight. It was a good. It was a fight it worth fighting fight. for. It wasn't with you though. Um, I do remember someone's comments about when we inserted so many others people's sentences and words in there. And <laughs> yeah, we I do actually remember that. Ended up having to trim out ten thousand words of our own, um, and we made the argument. It was a painful one because we wanted our words in the book, but it was more importantly, we wanted other people's words in the book because this is not just a book for Brad and I, it's a book for all of us. We want this to be a book to re be reflective of the voices in the ecosystem, the people that matter to us. We want this to reflect our collective thinking of how we look at the industry and how we think the future needs to be. And if we had our way, we would actually have Lita's piece and Patrick's piece on that because both of them are good friends of ours. Their messages has resonated with us long before we started writing the book. And those were important words 
they were very, very important words. And in the end, we had to trim it out and ended up with a quote. But um, it, it was, it was, it was hard, right? It, it's always it. It almost feels like it reflects a micro um, sense of what we do in life. It's about trade off, right? You want to do something, then you need to take your time to trade off something else because time is is finite. Just as when we do work, right? What you choose to work on, what you choose to focus on, who you choose to give the platform to, who you choose to give the mic to, how you think about life's priorities, all of those, at least in, in much sense, is a choice, right? So just like our podcast, we could choose to go run after all the bank CEOs and run after those who have a bigger platform than us so that we can get more listenership. Or we can choose to use our platform, what Brad and I have in the ecosystem, and lift up voices of others that are doing amazing work that not many of you have heard from. So that was a, a choice we made. We choose to invite guests from all walks of corners because we want them to be part of our tribe. We want them to be part of the, the movement, whether or not we are writing, whether or not we're doing a book, whether or not we are doing a podcast or panel sessions, we want to include more people, more different voices, because it's not just about quota, right? And that, that's the one thing I do reject is it's not about checking the box, it's not about quota. It's about the fact that the world is made of people from that look all different, that came from different walks of life, that are doing different things, doing amazing things, that have all kinds of different lived experiences. And it's more beautiful when we can include them all. So we're talking about beyond good, beyond good, how technology is leading a purpose-driven revolution. You could find out how to buy the book and you could find out more about those voices at beyondgoodbook.com. That is beyondgoodbook.com. And we think everyone who's already picked up uh, the book, we've, we've had it distributed now for several weeks and now it is officially available in every single geography in the US. Uh, beyond, you know, the world, everywhere, it's everywhere. Um, I want to ask you this, when you first got the book, when you first had the book sent to you, what did you do? I squealed. <laughs> I squealed so loud. My kids were looking at me. They're like, oh my God, what just happened? Um, but what was really cool was my daughter was so excited. She picked up a copy. It's her personal copy. And um, she started reading it. She actually is one of the biggest, one of our biggest supporters. She listens to the podcast every week. So she knows the people that we interview. She knows about you, Spiros. Um, she knows about you, Noel. And she knows about you, Sally. Like there are names that just pop up to her and she knows obviously about Danielle because Danielle's daughter is, she is like a carbon copy of, of my daughter. And so she would listen to these stories and she would tell me all the time she's like mommy i want to be like you guys when i grow up can i be part of unconventional ventures <laughs> when i grow up can i like have my office in new york she has a very different notion of of, of working in the future I me mean, she's only eight you know she's picking a good place to have that perspective as um, new york is is one of those great cities um 
So, so you know, I, I do remember, you know, you getting the book a few days before I got mine. And I was like, oh, that's so sad. I really want to see it. And I was like asking all sorts of questions like, you know, what does it feel like? What does it look like? What are the, you know, because you don't get a sense of it until you, you actually have it in your hands. And I think um, it was it was great on this side when I finally did get it. The boys were very excited. And, you know, it's we, we can't thank our families enough for the space given this past year that we were given to, you know, sort of curl up in our corners and start typing um, because it was. I, I remember quite well the initial meeting that we had um, with our publisher in London, and it was a year and three or four months ago at this point, just sitting down to talk about what we might want to write about. And, you know, at the time we were like, oh, this is so exciting. And then we started writing and that was still very exciting. And we started sketching out what we wanted to write about. And I think for the most part, those early sketch notes were what we ended up writing about. And I think it took us in a place that was unexpected. I think it took us to people that, you know, weren't unexpected because we knew who we wanted to bring in. But just the process of the pandemic hitting in the middle of this was something that had us pause because we had to reset. We had distance learning with our children. We had to, you know, really step back for almost three months and not right. And I think in some ways the book ended up coming out better because of it, because I think it, it shifted our perspective even that much more. You know, go back to those early months, go back to a year ago now when we first started lockdown and how that sort of changed your priorities about writing and doing everything else. Remember those days. Those days, we're still living these days. I don't think that much has That's changed, a good point. right? Other than, well, you know, we're grateful there's toilet paper. Um, life's necessities. Um, I do remember we ran an episode and we put toilet paper on, on the front cover. Um, because that, that was, I think it was, it was a moment where we're like, wait a minute, things that we took for granted, right? We took for granted that we can travel whenever we want and wherever we want. You know, we, we did a lot of conferences. We did a lot of speaking for the past few years. And all of a sudden, everything just hit pause. I think even my kids' closets, it took a pause. We never changed out the seasons because you didn't need different seasons when you're in the house all the time. Um, we talk a lot about consumer habits changing, right? The last year, we talked about how they have moved on to digital, how we leverage digital as a channel to do a lot of the things that we do because we don't feel safe going to a grocery store. We can't go out to eat. We can't do a lot of things that we used to do. And, and I think in a lot of ways, and, and we spoke about this recently, I hope that everything that we've gone through the last year as a society, as a collective human, gives us more empathy towards challenges that others might be experiencing or or that that could just be a fantasy on my part um we all constrained in a certain extent although we do say that we might all be in the same storm we're not in the same boat there are many others that have to be out risk their health and work where we could be at home and do our podcast and do our virtual conferences there are those that don't have the option to be at home to help their kids with virtual learning. And I could see that with my kids' classes, how some of the kids struggled more than the others. 
And then there are millions of those who don't even get the choice to choose if you want to do virtual learning or not because they don't have access to the internet or they cannot afford the internet. And it, and it brings me to a question recently I started thinking about. There's a lot of news about how does the future economy look? Because a lot of us are not spending, right? We haven't traveled, we haven't eaten out. So there's the illusion of the economy will recover because there's all these excess savings that will be unleashed. $3 trillion worth of money that all of a sudden everyone will unleash and spend. And so I keep hearing this question, what are we going to do with this $3 trillion? What are the banks going to do for the, with consumers that, that want to spend this $3 trillion? And I paused because I want us to think. Think about how do we end up needing that big stimulus bill? Why didn't we need the other stimulus from last year? Why are we thinking about how consumers will be spending that extra money when perhaps we should be thinking about what about the 74% of Americans who live paycheck to paycheck? They don't get to choose to figure out what they will spend with that excess savings because they don't have that excess savings. They don't get to choose what they want to do when we're sitting here thinking about what are we going to do with this pile of, of money that's going to come down because they are at the edge of being evicted. They're at the edge of trying to figure out how to make ends meet. They're trying to figure out how to trade of if they should feed their kids or get medicine. And this is a, a big gap that I think as an industry, we need to start thinking about, right? If all those numbers doesn't make you pause, then there's something really, really wrong with us as a society and as an industry. And, and I think that's what the, the book is a call to action for, is just to think a little bit more broadly about what is happening, you know, what is happening on the ground beyond your business model, beyond your profit margin. And, and I think that in, in general, you know, Banks have really failed this past year to step up and they just really need to rethink based on, on what we've seen this past year. I'm going to read something really quick from the last chapter of the book, because I think that this is a good sort of synopsis about kind of what we got into and what, why we, we wrote this. It's in the, the last chapter, which is moving hearts and mindsets to action. Um, we stated in the beginning of, of Beyond Good that this was not meant to be a regular business book. Rather, it is intended to be a journey where we can explore ways toward more empathetic leadership. It's designed to get us to all think differently about trends such as longevity and the future of work, about positive business models, the ethics of decisions, and the trade-offs we make, just like you were talking about. Through the examples of individuals, organizations, and leadership concepts, we have tried to create a framework in which personal and business decisions can be taken that collectively create a common good and fulfill a purpose that goes beyond ourselves. So, you know, that to me is, it's, if I were to pick up this book and not have written it with you, I would have 
come across this and had a lot of questions and asked myself a lot of questions about what I was doing, what my company was doing, what my efforts were outside of work and what I stood for. And I think that's what this is. It's a call to action for people to think about what they do and what it means. And so, you know, we'll, we'll start sort of wrapping up a little bit of this conversation just again to invite you to let us know what you think about Beyond Good and what it means in your life. And so we, we end with, you know, the, the, the book kind of having a call to action. And it says, we urge you to join us in taking that next step. We want to be inspired and we want to have you inspire others. We want to use your voice and stand up and shout. And we said, start a chorus alliance. We want you to act up and make that kind of trouble, that bad, that uh, good kind of trouble that John Lewis wanted everybody to make. Act in the interest of those who can't act. Teach those who don't yet know how to stand up. Speak for those who haven't yet found their voice. And so on that, we want to leave that hopeful note. And um, we want to thank everybody who's been involved in the production of this book. And, and what do you think? Is this the first of many? I mean, so, so when are we going to start writing again? I don't think we've stopped writing, right? <laughs> That's a good point. We still have our blogs every single week. Um, we still do write a lot of work with our clients. Um, so I, I think... What I would urge is just take a pause, right? Take a pause. It can be today, it can be tomorrow, or make it a habit. Take a pause, take, take a few minutes, and just take stock at what you have, take stock at what you're doing, and then think, right, like what Brad say. What is your purpose? What are you trying to do? What are you trying to achieve? What, what kind of world are we trying to leave for our kids and their kids and the generations after? And what do our actions do to that vision that you want? And with that, thank you so much for listening in to another episode of One Vision. And we'll talk to you next week.